Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with cognitive scientist and child psychology professor Allison Gopnik. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Yeah, very good to talk to you. I don't know um, if you're aware that I interviewed your wonderful brother. I, I, in fact, I was going to say, I, I, uh, I really loved that. I really loved that interview. I mean, of course, Adam does a lot of interviews, and I do a lot of interviews, so there yeah. are a lot of them out there. But I particularly, I particularly liked that one. Yeah, um, I did too. He's a fantastic person, and he's been talking to me about you forever. And um, I don't know, it just uh-huh. felt like time. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I really loved the interview you did with Ezra Klein. Yeah. Yeah, that was another funny one where we ended up, Adam and I ended up doing back-to-back interviews completely sort of independent of one another (laughs) that I don't think that people even realized we were related. Um, No. Well, I had actually, after I got Adam's last book, I had pinged Ezra and said, I think this is great. And then I heard him when he interviewed you saying that he had no idea that you were Adam's sister when he, when right. he went into yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a good he, small world. I mean, I have to say, that was a fantastic interview. That was maybe one of the best interviews, probably the best interview I've ever done. And it's kind of interesting because when you've done a lot, you tend to, it's hard to resist being just sort of a bit canned and you know what you're going to say and you say the things that you always say. But somehow talking to someone, and I thought that was true with your interview with Adam as well, you know, when you're talking to someone who's really thoughtful and knowledgeable and just intelligent the way that Ezra is. Um, yeah. It just brings out things that are not just the canned things that you would usually say. So well, I was really pleased Well, with and I also think that, that he was just especially animated with you and it had everything to do with him having a young baby, right? And that, yeah. you know, that his entire last year had been so caught up in pregnancy and, uh, you know, and so that just gave it this wonderful humanity, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was very very uh well, you know, my uh, my raison d'etre in life, my vocation for these past probably now almost 50 years is trying to get that phenomenon of childhood and children and our relation to them taken seriously, yeah. um intellectually, not just oh okay, this is this little personal thing that happens to people, but something that's deep and profound and and intellectually significant and it's it's great when Someone like Ezra, um, who obviously, you know, is someone who's thoughtful in a very wide-ranging way, actually has the experience of having and caring for a child and suddenly brings all that brain power to bear on it. That's exactly what yeah. I want to have. Yes. Um, I want to have happen. Yes. All um, right. Well, let's 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 just let's jump started. in because I'm afraid yeah. we're we're wandering the yeah. things I want you to say yeah. on air. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's do Are we okay, Chris? Okay. Perfect. Um, um, yeah, we're going to come right back to that. Um, uh, you know, I I have a question. I I, I generally ask um, everyone I interview, whoever they are, um, just wondering about the spiritual or religious background of their childhood. However they, however they understand that now. But it, it occurs to me, you know, a word that you know you are trained as a philosopher. That was your your first love, and and I wondered. I would kind of add to that. Kind of, how would you think about the spiritual, religious, or philosophical background? Um, yeah. of your childhood. 
So we were brought up as absolutely militant atheists, um, uh, militant, serious atheists. That was that was very much the creed in our in our household, um, and I retain that creed to this day, uh, in the sense of not believing in something that was non natural, not yeah. believing in a god, and so forth. A little bit of background that's interesting is that my great grandfather was actually uh, a rabbi. He was actually one of the first. <laughs> Was the first rabbi to go back to Portugal after the Inquisition in the nineteen oh. in the nineteen twenties. So we actually have a, a religious tradition in the background, but you know that Jewish tradition is often as much just a sort of intellectual ethical tradition yes. as it is a religious tradition. So on the one hand, I mean, you know, from in terms of what you might think of as uh, a set of beliefs about religion, we were we were raised very much as militant atheists. On the other hand. Um, and I don't know how much this is individual and how much this was also part of our childhood. What I like to think of as sort of the numinous rather than the spiritual, the sense of mm. awe and relation to a world that's much bigger than you are, a set of emotions about the significance and meaning of what's going on around you. Although that whole that whole set of of emotions and feelings and beliefs, that was something that was very much part of my childhood. And that's partly, I think that was partly just my idiosyncratic psychology. But I think it was also something that growing up in a very, very, very intensely aesthetic family at the same time. So we were militant atheists, but we, I mean, essentially, I've, I've written about this, our creed was modernist literature and art. So, yeah, right. Um, so we got taken to see the Seagram's building the way that other kids would have been taken to see a cathedral. And we went to see Beckett and Brecht. In fact, we acted in, in Beckett and Brecht the oh. way that, uh, that other kids might, um, might go to church. So, so we had some very intense aesthetic and literary values. And I do think those intense aesthetic and literary values are very closely connected to what's often called spiritual values. Right. Oh, I think I remember you describing one of your earliest memories as going to the Guggenheim with your parents. Is that right? That's right. So that this is, again, um, you know, my parents were part of this wonderful generation after, uh, after the Second World War who were, you know, kids of relatively poor immigrants, but who felt as if they could just invent and discover the whole world, and mm. particularly invent and discover the aesthetic and literary world. And we were four and three, and my parents, who were poor students, dressed us up in these beautiful velvet outfits that my mother had made, <laughs> put us in the little VW bug. We drove up to New York. We stood in line. Both my brother and I remember this very vividly. We stood in line for a long time. We walked around the spiral of the Guggenheim. We mm. walked back down. We got in the bug, and we got back home. But we certainly, we certainly were told and had the feeling that this was a, a, a deep, important experience to have had. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you were the oldest of six children who were born in eleven years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and I and and I've heard, um, I've heard you say that you love that you always that you loved children that you were fascinated with babies and children. You had that early, very personal experience of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as often with oldest sisters, particularly um, older siblings and older sisters, become 
kind of surrogate uh, parent. And actually, part of the work that I've done scientifically, I think it's a really important point is that for most of human history, uh, babies and children were being taken care of as much, if not more, by older siblings, by other people in the community as they were by their their biological moms. So when you've had six children in 11 years, the way my my mom did... um, you know, a lot of the focus is on this new baby who really takes a lot of caring. And that means that uh, as the older sibling, I was spending a lot of time taking care of the younger siblings. Yeah, you know, um, I, I was thinking when I when I read that, my so my daughter was almost five when, um, when her brother was born. And she was right at that age where she just felt hardwired to want to have her own baby, right? Mm-hmm. And she kind of treated me like the container, like I was the vessel, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who had brought her child into the world. And she actually, in some ways, still relates to her little brother in that way. Um, well, I think my my joke used to be, it was, it's a bit like, you know, when you read uh, when you read accounts of the monarchy where, you know, the king and queen, the actual king is monarch is sort of off in the distance. And then there's the viceroy who actually is the one who's making all of the decisions <laughs> and handing down rules, which he, uh, which he claims are coming from the monarch. And my younger sibs have sometimes described our growing up as being a bit like that. There were all sorts of, apparently, there were all sorts of rules and, and deep principles, which my parents deny, but which the younger sibs were convinced were uh, were the rule is laid down by the viceroy. <laughs> um, okay, and you um, you did study philosophy. Talk a little bit about that that move for you from that as your focal point to babies as your focal point. Yeah. So. From the time my uh, little philosophical formation story, myth, is that oh, when I was about 10, I read, um, I read Socrates for the first time. I read Plato. And in particular, I read the Apology and the Phaedo. And the Phaedo is a wonderful dialogue where um, Socrates is trying to deal with the question about where it is that we come from. So how is it that we have, seem to have this soul and yet the soul seems to come out of nothing, and there's a long discussion about where the soul could come from. And I do vividly remember thinking as I was reading that, well, it comes through having children. You know, you have children, and then you pass on a soul to those children. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of remarkable that in that discussion, there was not even a mention of children. Children just didn't appear. And in fact, if you read most of... uh, most of Western philosophy, um, children didn't even appear. Children didn't appear as part of moral argumentation. They didn't appear as part of uh, uh, ideas about where the mind came from or where knowledge came from. Um, and it seemed to me very, very quickly that there was a really great project that you could do trying to take all of this information about children that we were just beginning to to uh, accumulate and thinking about children in the kind, in a kind of deep philosophical way. And that was particularly true because the philosophical question that I was most interested in captivated by is what I sometimes call the problem of knowledge, which is, how is it that we ever know anything about the world around us? All that reaches us from the world are these tiny little, you know, disturbances of air at our ears and photons on our retinas, and yet we all know about a world, and in the end, we know about a world full of, you know, quarks and quasars. How is that possible? How could that possibly ever happen? Um, Again, this is kind of big, deep philosophical question. 
And it seemed obvious to me that if you wanted to really answer that question, the place to look was at the babies and children who were the ones who were actually um, who were actually doing that learning. Um, but when I started out in philosophy in the 1970s, uh, people looked at me as if I was kind of crazy <laughs> to Wanting think to that those two that. things. And, and so yeah. you moved to experimental psychology, is that right? Yeah, that's uh-huh. right. So I did my, my first degree, my BA, mostly in philosophy with a bunch of psychology courses. And then I uh, went to Oxford for my DPhil, wanting to do both philosophy and psychology. And my joke about this is that after a year or so, I was spending half my time going down to Logic Lane, which is where the philosophers were arguing, and then half my time going up to the sort of suburbs in North Oxford, which is where they parked the women and children and mm. studying toddlers. And after a while, I realized I could spend the rest of my life with either a community of completely disinterested seekers after truth who wanted to find out about the world more than anything else, or a community of sort of spoiled narcissistic creatures who demanded that women take care of them all the time. And since the first group was the babies and the second group was the Oxford philosophers, <laughs> I would rather spend my time with the babies. With the babies um, asking the deep questions. <laughs> um, uh, that's a little unfair, but it's not completely, it's not completely inaccurate. Um, Are you familiar with, there's a, there's a, there's a proverb in, I believe that it, there's a it's it's in, in Judaism, but also in, there's a version of it in Islam that um, before a child is born, the angel Gabriel tells him all the seek everything, all the secrets huh, yeah. of the universe, mm-hmm. then kisses him on the forehead, and he begins gradually to forget it all. And mm-hmm. I remember when my children were born, you you do have this feeling that they know everything, right? And they're and you've been studying this scientifically. There are uncanny ways that they feel knowledgeable and wise and intelligent. Um, I just feel like maybe that proverb is kind of pointing at that. But but as you say, science wasn't looking at it, and and philosophy yeah, wasn't really looking at it. It's interesting because if you look at the spiritual traditions, and I've done a bit of this, um, there's lots of moments when people recognize or say something about the fact that babies and children have a kind of wisdom, a kind of exploration, a kind Mm -hmm. of way of seeing the world uh, that's really different from the adult uh, version and that we we lose as uh, we lose as we get older. Yeah. And Um, you almost and those those early years, it's like you almost feel them losing it, you know, even as they become fascinating in other ways, even as they're learning other things. Yeah. um, And it's I in the context of thinking about uh, religion, I even at one point did a little bit of um, a little bit of research about you know Jesus has this famous phrase about having the little children suffering the little children, and uh, yeah. apparently at the time you know we just sort of take that for granted now the little children of the kingdom of heaven, but apparently at the time that was you know like saying that women or or everyday people could be. Uh, religious, that was a really transgressive thing to say. It was mm-hmm. a really, really um, uh, not the kind of standard view that you would have at all that little children would be a model for uh, for the kingdom of heaven. And I think if you look at that tradition, you look at some of the things in the Buddhist tradition, like traditions about beginners' minds, yes. you look at yes. some of the great poetic traditions, particularly the romantics like William Wordsworth and, and, uh, and Dorothy Wordsworth, you see people 
seeing that there's something special, there's something about childhood and about childhood experience and childhood childhood knowledge and experience of the world that that first of all is extremely valuable and second is is really different from the experience and knowledge of of adults. Now that goes yes. hand in hand with the fact that most of the time the philosophers and psychologists are saying that babies are black slates and blooming buzzing confusions and right. and you know not really worth paying much attention to. There's mm-hmm. actually a wonderful exchange between Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, one of the other little interesting pieces of research I did once is that you know Wordsworth actually managed to support himself when he was doing his early poetry. By essentially being a manny, he he took huh. care of um, he took care of these children that had sort of been abandoned by a, a a a child who had been abandoned by one of his aristocratic buddies, and he and Dorothy both kept records of the development of this child. So he and Dorothy both were really genuinely paying attention to to children, Dorothy especially, um, in a in a very real empirical way, and some of his. Uh, some of his ideas that came out in the poetry about children having this special character, they weren't just sort of poetic ideas. They were based on this actually somewhat unusual experience for a male poet at that time of of having spent a lot of time with children. And Coleridge at one point writes to him and says, what's the children thing, right? Like, why why would you think that children would be the source of this? You know, opium, yes, children, um, (laughs) children, children, no. Um, so I do think people are are seeing this. And one of the things that we've been doing scientifically in the lab, the thing that I'm actually most excited about at the moment, and my my uh, new book it will will be about if I ever finish writing it, is that we can actually show scientifically the differences between the ways that children's minds and brains work and the ways that adult minds and brains work that capture, I think, the thing that those spiritual leaders and poets and you know generations of of mothers and caregivers were seeing in the young children. Um, and one way to think about this is a contrast that actually comes from computer science um, between exploring the world and exploiting the world. Right, so right. most of the time as adults, we're in this state of... Uh, um, how, do we uh, make, how do we make use of this? Exactly. We're mm-hmm. in this state that the, you know, the Buddhists talk about as being Maya or Wordsworth very vividly describes by saying, getting and spending, we lay waste our days. Right. Um, but, you know, we need to get and spend to be able to function in the world, including to be able to take care of our, our children. Um, so most of the time, as adults, we're in this, in this kind of narrow, goal-directed, uh, focused state, which is great, right? I mean, we would never get anything. Right. We would never get anything done if we were. Yeah. Sorry. Civilization needs that too. Absolutely, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, but I think that the other kind of state that we're in is a state in which we are released from the demands of exploitation. We're released from having to think about what do I need to do next. We kind of can be Marys instead of Marthas. Um, And we are able to explore the range of possibilities, the range of possibilities in the world, the range of possibilities of thoughts, the range of hypothetical ways the world could be that are different from the way the world actually is. Um, We're able to be open to information that's coming from lots of different sources, information that's coming from the world all around us. And that state is the state that I think uh, young children are in pretty much all the time. And yeah. 
And part of what happens as we get older is that we transfer, we move from being in that kind of state of wild exploration, um, and even even comes with a kind of phenomenology of hyper consciousness that um, I think is is we move from that kind of state of wide ranging openness to experience both out externally and internally, and then we kind of narrow down into this exploit phase as. Uh, as adults, and I think there's That's an argument to be made that prefrontal cortex clicking in, right, helping I- exactly. Us and even if you just look biologically, yeah, yeah, if you look biologically, what happens is you get this early brain in which many, many, many new connections are being formed, um, and then you get this tipping point about age five, actually, where the connections that are formed get stronger and are are more efficient, but then the connections that aren't formed are, are pruned, kind of disappear, and you get much more of this prefrontal control. So you get the kind of executive office of the brain controlling much more of the rest of the brain. Um, and I think it's interesting that if you look at certain kinds of adult experience, like mystical experience, like uh, some of the um, work that we've been, I've been thinking about at Berkeley, if you look at the effects of certain kinds of psychedelic substances, which seem to um, uh, have effects that are very much like the effects of various kinds of mystical experiences, experiences in meditation. Um, those are all adult experiences, uh, numinous experiences, that seem to replicate in some ways that, that return to exploration, mm-hmm. that return mm-hmm. to not being in control, that return to a sense of openness to the world at large. Yeah, openness and curiosity. I, I, was, I, I thought what I was getting ready to interview you about, a conversa- I had a conversation many years ago with Robert Coles, who, who of course, in his field, I mean, it was, it was strange for him when he picked up the spiritual lives of children, right? He'd written books about the moral lives of children and the political lives of children. And um, I just want to read you something he said to me. <laughs> he said, uh, children are questioning and he said that there's a there's a merger between um, the natural curiosity and interest children have in the world with the natural interest and curiosity that religion has about the world at its best. Um, it's our effort in this planet as creatures who have a mind and use language to ask questions and answer them through speculation, through storytelling, to explore the universe. And those fundamental questions, where do we come from, what are we, and where, if any place, are we going? And he said those fundamental questions inform religious life and inform the lives of children as children, and that merger is a beautiful thing to behold. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, that's, I didn't know that quote, but I think that's lovely and, and very accurate, that yeah. that's, that's what childhood, that's one of the things, at least, that childhood is all about. And again, it's one of the things that uh, that religion uh, is all about. Now, it has to be said, uh, I've been an advisor to the wonderful anthropologist, Tanya Lerman, who's, mm, I don't know mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you've had her on the show. I haven't had her on the um, show, but I'm a, I, I follow her work. Yeah. She's fantastic. So she's she's part of a project looking at religious experience, so trying to figure out something about what shapes religious experience across many different kinds of cultures. And, and in her, when we're I'm an advisor to this project, and one of the things we often talk about is kind of the Methodist issue is the way the anthropologists of religion (laughs) describe it, which is it's very tempting to think about religion in terms of all these 
uh, you know, altered, mystical, wide-ranging experiences. But there's a religious tradition that's about going Answers out and doing and good rules. in the world. Well, right, right. No, and that's right. <laughs> there's there. I think what he's talking about, he, the spirit of religion, and then there's the practice of religion, which is often different. But, you know, I'm very, I want to talk about how you've come at um, this question of what it is about about evolution, our evolution as a species, that lays the, the groundwork for this, for this way that, and there's a way you've said it, that adults and children in some ways are, are different species of homo sapiens. Um, mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about, about how, you've, how you come at this from this, what you call the evolutionary paradox that is human childhood and adolescence. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so one of the interesting questions is why is it that we have childhood at all? So we have a much longer period of immaturity, a much longer childhood than any other species. Yeah. And if you look across an incredibly wide range of different species, even you know down to insects, you see this striking correlation between how, how long a period of immaturity in childhood there is and how good the adult is at learning, how large a brain they have, how much they can adjust to different environments, just sort of how smart they are overall. Um, and it's been a bit of a puzzle. Why would you have these tremendous costs? So if you look at human children, we need an enormous amount of investment just to keep Incredibly them alive. Incredibly labor-intensive. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah. seems very evolutionarily Seems very evolutionarily paradoxical. We've yeah. even evolved postmenopausal grandmothers, one of my favorite stages of cognitive life, um, uh, who are putting investment into yes. children instead of having more children. Yes. Um, why? Why would that be? Why do we see this relationship? And I think this explore exploit idea might be able to help. So if you go out to the people in um, in artificial intelligence, for instance, the people I'm collaborating with here at Berkeley. Um, one of the ways of resolving this tension between exploration and exploitation is have a period of exploration first, and then as a result of that period of exploration, you can, you when you go into exploit, you will do a better job because you will have explored more alternatives. So the picture is it's very hard to do both things, to explore all the possibilities and act effectively at the same time, but by starting out exploring and then and actually in that exploration period, actively not being able to do things like plan and, and act, um, then when the time comes to exploit, you'll actually do a better job. And this is a technique that gets used in, in, uh, in computer science all the time to try and get systems that can actually both explore and uh, exploit effectively. So my slogan is that um, uh, childhood is evolution's way of resolving this explore-exploit paradox, doing what mm. computer scientists call simulated annealing, starting out with a hot, very sort of random, bouncy sort of search through possibilities and then gradually narrowing in. And I think there's an argument to be made that many of the things that we think of as as at least some features of uh, religious uh, experience, or spiritual experience in adults kind of give you a chance to return to that give you a chance to return to that state of openness um, and then give you some of the same advantages you had as a uh, you had as a child. So at least the part of religion that's about uh, sort of renouncing the world, just getting into a state of 
of open spiritual experience, I think that is very much serving the same kinds of functions as childhood experience. Um, it, it seems, so you, you know, one of the things that you see and, and, and kind of shine a light on is how, I mean, this, that going from being a baby to a child, a young child to an older child, to a teenager, or to an adult, there's this metamorphosis, right, that change and a capacity to change is such a central aspect of our species, and that and that for children, for babies and children, um, our that 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 capacity to change also makes us so creative, and yeah, and not that's... and that creativity is not just a contribution to the life of individual children, but in fact to the experience our species is having, you know, the adults around them are having. Yeah, one of the things about human beings is that we're a, we're a cultural species. So we pass on information from one generation to the next. And this, this design of having an early period where you can do lots of exploration at the same time that you're taking on the information that the previous generation has developed, I think often in the form of having an old grandmother around who's telling you the myths and songs yeah. of your of your tribe, um, that combination seems to be the thing that not isn't just helping individual individual children, but is also allowing the whole species to to uh, thrive at least in so far as we have so far, at least to make progress in learning about the world and being able to create new worlds. Now, of course, that may end up in our extinction, but at least we <laughs> can envision whether or not it's going to end up in our extinction. Um, there's, there's something to say about that that I think is interesting that I've thought about in the religious context as well, which is, you know, one of those great capacities that you see in children is this capacity for imagination, this yeah. capacity yeah. to think about worlds that are different from the world that we're currently in. And anyone who has a two or three-year-old knows that they spend a lot of their time off in these kind of crazy pretend worlds. They're yeah. off in these imaginary places more during the day than they're in the real world. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting paradoxical question for cognitive psychology about what function is this serving? Why are they spending so much time out in these in these worlds that are obviously fictional. I had, obviously a, I had a son. Real. My son was just, he just had this mode he went into that was absolutely total. And he would, you know, he would be walking around the house, but there was a whole world there that we couldn't see. <laughs> Stepping up on the sofas and throwing things across the room. But we called it, oh, oh Sebastian saving the world again. And yet it's... I think as a parent, it's clearly, it's so fascinating and it doesn't, it feels something more than fanciful, right? Yeah, exactly. It and feels it, it intelligent. Out, it's almost enviable, right? Like you, you wish you could get inside that world and see what's going on. Um, well, it turns out that children, you know, at some point, the psychologists and philosophers used to think, oh, well, the kids don't know the difference between fantasy and reality. It turns out that's not true. No. The, kids, the yeah. kids know the difference perfectly well, yeah. but they seem to think that being in those unreal, fantastic worlds is is important as well as being fun. And I think that's... I think that speaks to, again, you know, some of the paradoxes of fiction, of religious story, storytelling, of myth... Um, there's this puzzle for us as adults about 
what's the sense in which there could be truth in things that look obviously on the surface that we'd say, okay, that's something that's not true. And I think thinking about the functions, you know, it sounds dismissive to say, oh, well, this is just like kids pretending, but kids pretending is really deep and important yeah. and and evolutionarily has has strong evolutionary roots. And I think some of the things that that kid pretending can do, again, exploring the range of possibilities, thinking about the ways that you could be as a human being that are different from the ways that you currently yeah. are. Alternative, um, alternatives to the reality that is given, right? That's, exactly. That's mm-hmm. one of the most crucial things that human beings do. Mm-hmm. We can consider alternatives to the reality that we're facing with now, facing now. And often we articulate those alternatives in terms of fictions and stories and things that are uh, fantastic, uh, like... And, and it's what artists do, right? I mean, it, it, there, there are places in our society that we honor this <laughs> as a profession right. and celebrate it and all understand that we learn from it. It's still a bit of a cognitive mystery, though. It's uh-huh. a bit of a mystery for cognitive science. I think everyone kind of recognizes that. But it's still a bit mysterious for cognitive science about why, how does that work? Why is it that this kind of, uh, this kind of activity has the benefits and the interest that it does. And, you know, if, if it was just if it was just adult poets, you could say, you know, the way Plato did, well, okay, they're amusing liars that we have to entertain us. But yeah. when it's something that you see ubiquitously in young children, it makes you think there's some really important deep thing that's going on about imagining different ways that the world could be. And I think, again, that's one of the things that happens in spiritual traditions. Yeah. I'm... Um... I'm very interested also in how you think about then the shift to adolescence and mm-hmm. teenagers. What happens? You know, I spent a lot of my I spent my young early adulthood in Europe, where where there's not this notion that adolescence is a problem to be solved, and teenagers will def you know will will absolutely terrorize you and. Um, and I feel like there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in this culture. Like we kind of gear up for our teenagers mm-hmm. to be problems. And, you know, you've said adolescence is not a problem to be solved. And one of the interesting points you make is that on the one hand, um, on the one hand, yes, there's this rebelliousness that also is a species, you know, is, is there's, this is this, this acute moment of rebelliousness in our species. And clearly there's there are lots of developmental things going on. But that also pro-sociality, altruism, um, are linked, are another mm-hmm. side of that, of that rebelliousness. It's so interesting. How's that work? Well, well we've done, you know, uh, when, when I was saying before about the children switching from sort of exp- exploration to exploitation, we've actually done a bunch of studies that show that, in fact, children are more creative, can consider more possibilities early on than they than they can later on or they can as adults. Um, But one of the interesting things that we discovered sort of fortuitously, so we were trying to track these experiments where uh, you basically have a bunch of data and you have different ways that you could explain the data. And the children are more likely to come to the unlikely solution than adults. And you can really see this Mm. just declining gradually as children are getting older. But then we had a version of that where the problem was a social problem. It was about explaining why people did what they did rather than explaining, say, why a machine lit up. And what we discovered there, somewhat to our surprise, was the preschoolers, the four-year-olds, were very creative. Um, The adults were not creative. That was consistent with other people's uh, findings. Uh, There was a decline at school age, which is what we'd found otherwise. But there was actually a burst 
in creativity in the social world in adolescence. Hmm. So the adolescents were actually the ones who were the most flexible when it came to thinking about a solution to a problem like, why did that person do what they did? Um, and I think there's a lot of reason to believe that adolescents are often kind of at the cutting edge of of social change. And part of that is this capacity to think about all the different possibilities about the way the world could be. And I, I feel like we're in, we're in an historical moment where that feels like it's on display, right? That, that, that the great name in, 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 in our encounter with, uh, with, with whatever is happening with the natural world um, is Greta, you know, is a, is a, is a yeah. teenager. And um, I'm, I'm very fascinated with your idea that about generation that we, you know, it, I mean, I I talk a lot about it. It's 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 not a new idea that that substantial culture shift happens in generational time as opposed to mm-hmm. election cycle time. Although although we're all acting like that's not true right now, um, but but you are making a different point. You're you're saying that that minds that like the mind of a of a, mm-hmm. our species changes. Through generational change, um, more than individual change, that that generations—I want you to put it in your own words—but this is how I like yeah. to understand that they could, that they're continually kind of kicking us out of whatever rut we're in, whatever exactly. stasis is there. That, That's right. That, ch- that childhood and and I, I think the teenage years are are these parts of the human experience that also serve that function, but in ways I guess it's not so easy to see that generally because. It's not, it's not, as we say now, real time, right? It's something yeah. that you only see kind of almost in hindsight. But talk about that. I think it's so resonant with the world right now, too. And I wonder if that strikes you as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because from an evolutionary perspective, there's this question about what was it out in the world that led to these biological changes? And, of course, that's on the long scale of evolutionary history. But still... By that, by that measure, rather quick uh, changes that led to the development of, of Homo sapiens. And the best hypothesis is that it was actually climate change. It was actually changes in, that made the right. climate less predictable that led to this device of having human beings with a very long childhood in which they could deal with whatever environment they happened to be placed <laughs> Isn't in. Isn't that fascinating so, to think about right now? It is. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I say is humans now cause climate change, but in the past, climate change caused humans. humans. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we don't have the biological timescale to work with, mm-hmm. but we do have this kind of cultural evolution uh, timescale where what we're designed, what young people are, as it were, designed to do is to say, OK, wait a minute, I'm in an environment which is different from the one that the previous generation was in. Mm-hmm. What are the possibilities? What do I have to do to be able to cope with this new and different environment? Um, and the older generation often has become so adept at dealing with the environment that they grew up in that it's hard for them to to uh, skip over to consider a whole other range of possibilities. So it's hard to think, okay, here's a completely different way that we could run the world. And that happens over and over again. But I think there's a, 
a kind of poetic irony in the fact that we originally developed these capacities to deal with climate change, and now those might be the capacities that will let us uh, that will let us uh, survive uh, climate change now. Well, and if you think about Greta Thunberg, but it's not just her. I mean, she's become this face of something. But it's it's. I mean, t- teenagers in general are very interesting. Um, I mean, I think also of the of the kind of imprint the Parkland kids made yeah. as they raised their voices, as they modeled a different kind of reaction. Um, but again, you know, coming back to your idea that that rebelliousness, which would just be calling, I mean, I, you know, and also in the sense of calling out an, an, a nonsensical status quo um, and pro-sociality because they are very focused on I, I would even say, and, and you know, there's also something about the 21st century and about our technology that we we have an ability to think as a species, or that we're, that's emerging, and that that is very much also what they're t- speaking and acting on behalf of is is the the greater social good in the most expansive sense. Well, I think one piece about that, um, and again, I, this comes back to a, a separate way that I think that children are. Uh, speaking to children can speak to the same kinds of issues that uh, religious traditions have have been concerned about and spoken to um, is the way that we care about each other. So, mm-hmm. one of the in the in the sort of you know Western philosophical tradition, um, the way of trying to articulate our ethical obligations or the ways that we take care of each other tend to be these very contractual kinds of pictures. So, uh, you know, you, you'll, I'll do this for you because you'll do that for me. Yeah. Even if you think about, you know, even the golden rule is sort of like that, right? I mean, if right, I, right. I, I'm going to coordinate what I do, treat other people the way that they, yeah. I'd like them to treat me. Kind and then rational me and transactional. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't, you know, you shouldn't diss that. That's the basic, um, that's the basic uh, brilliant insight of the Enlightenment. And it's the insight that's led to a much, much, much better world than we had before. The, the liberal, um, the liberal, uh, the liberal world. Uh, it's led to things like being able to use markets and being able to have democracy. Taking that kind of individual relationship of here's a contract and, and putting it up on a national scale. Um, but there's another tradition that goes back. It's interesting. People like Ming Xi in the in the, um, the Chinese tradition argued for this. It says, you know, that's one way that we deal with each other ethically. But there's a much more profound way that we deal with each other ethically, which is the way that um, mothers and children, for example, um, the, the way that when you have a child, for example, that you're taking care of, it's not that you have a contract. It's just that you take on mm-hmm. the needs and utilities of that other person. That literally, if you're caring for a child, the child's needs become your needs and often overwhelm your needs. In fact, always, <laughs> at least in part, overwhelm right. Right. Uh, your needs. And that's a really striking uh moral and ethical relationship. It's a kind of altruism that is intrinsic. And we, we have very good evidence now, again, from just from the science, that this kind of altruism is there even in very, very young babies. This this ability to take the people who are close to you and just adopt. This is what their needs are. And I am just automatically out there to to help them uh, to fulfill those needs that we we've done we did studies of this and others have you know 18 month olds are are starting to do this and mm-hmm. that's such a different picture mm-hmm. of 
how ethical relations work. So for someone like Meng Xi and others in the Confucian tradition, the real political problem is how do you scale up that relationship, those close, uh, intimate uh, relationships, those relationships of attachment, as psychologists say, how do you scale them up to the scale of a community or a nation or a planet? Um, and I think that's a really interesting. Uh, I think that's a really interesting deep challenge. How can you do that in a way that captures autonomy at this? Um, captures autonomy at the same time. Uh, and and again, in religious traditions, um, one of the things I say in one of my books is, you know. If you want to get a little taste of sainthood, taking care of a three-year-old is a pretty good way to do it. Um, that's sort of a joke, but not really in the sense that that sense that you have of your attachment to, to children, that combination of this particular being is the most valuable being on the entire planet. Um, and I would do anything for this particular being. Yeah, there's a being. selflessness that you did not know you were capable of. That's right. And mm-hmm. I think almost anybody who cares for a child, whether mm-hmm. they're as a parent or in another context, recognizes mm-hmm. that is part of the relationship. And it's easy to say, um, it's easy to say, okay, that's just an illusion that you know evolution has has placed on us so we continue to have more babies. But I think it's the opposite. I think that sense that you have when you're caring for a child, that this individual child, just them, just because of who they are, is the most valuable thing in the world. Not mm-hmm. because they, you know, are particularly smart or particularly pretty. It's just them. They're incredibly valuable. I think that's when we're seeing people clearly. That's when we're actually mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. what human values are like. Mm-hmm. I have I have three other, um, I have uh, two sisters who also have grandchildren. And we go through this thing where we sort of say, yeah, you know, that grandchild, he, oh, he's wonderful. He's <laughs> smart. And he's, <laughs> a little bit we're saying, yeah, but he's not like, not like mine. No, sure, right? sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, we think of that as being this funny illusion, funny grandmother illusion about how fantastic your grandchild is. Yeah. But I think there's a really serious religious point about the fact that no, no, that's not the illusion. That's the reality. The illusion is when we think that there are billions of people who don't have that worth, who don't have that value, who aren't that deep and important and and worthy of love. Now, it's pretty hard. That's sort of the project of the the project of the bodhisattvas um, of the world is, or perhaps of the the great spiritual leaders is. Could you? love every all those billions of people the same way that you love your grandchild well of course you couldn't but yeah. that that's a kind of model i think for how relations between people could could work uh, a, a kind of model for how you could do your ethics and your politics that's very different from the kind of standard model which is you know a bunch of men making contracts with with one another well and i i think again this is very this is a very present observation. Um, I mean, I absolutely agree with you with about what the Enlightenment brought us in terms of the civilizations we came into the 21st century with. But all those, the elements of the social contract, you know, markets and democracies are uh, very fragile now, right? Like we're a moment where that social contract is is not is 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 struggling at you know at best and and you know what but what I what I was something I've been thinking about that your your observations really are are interesting to me is you know 
that question of how do we scale, how do we, or, or the, the reality that although right now we're so fractured across so many lines of disagreement, whether it's the language we use about things or what we believe in, and yet our families and very often the relationship between parents and children is a microcosm of that kind of disagreement. Mm-hmm. And yet we can we know in our intimate lives how to continue loving others, right? Mm-hmm. And like as you've said, we're capable of loving without needing transactional outcomes. And and I mean that's a that's a more mm, clinical way of talking about something that we need that we actually need. Um, we need forms and sources of cohesion in our. Mm-hmm in our cultural life together to kind of navigate this moment. And also if we're going to address these big issues before us, like whether maybe climate change will make us human again or, or destroy us. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's so, I mean, here's a line, that, something you said in your conversation with Ezra Klein, which I, which I so enjoyed, that one thing you've seen is that we, we're not just capable of caring for for people because we love them. We don't actually care for our children because we love them, although we might think that. That love is engendered through the act of caring. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like that has social relevance as well as as personal relevance, or it could. Well, you know, it's funny. If you think about this kind of evolutionary framework in which human beings evolved— As I've said, there's this kind of explore piece and there's this exploit piece. But there's this third piece, which is the caring piece. The explorers couldn't explore if they didn't have all those caregivers. And again, for human beings, it's not just biological mothers, but fathers and grandmothers and and the world at large. Um, And caring, caregiving, is a really special thing. It doesn't have the same structure as most of the other things that we do. Because when you're really caring for someone, caring for a baby being the quintessential example. Mm-hmm. But also um, old parents, right? If, 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 right. Yeah. But parents or, or... somebody who's ill, who you love, who you... Or, yeah. uh, in all of those cases, you have this, all these interesting tensions where you're not supposed to be and you shouldn't be just trying to fulfill your own ends. What you need to do is figure out how to help the person, whether it's a baby or an old person or, or someone who's, um, who's ill. You want them to be able to do the things that they need to do, and yet you have to sacrifice your own ends to some extent to mm-hmm. enable them to do the things that they independently, autonomously want to do. Yeah. It's a very challenging. It's a very challenging thing to be able to mm-hmm. to do. To be able to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm not doing this because I want my ch- to shape my child to come out a particular way. I'm doing this so that my child can find their own way, or my my uh, elderly parent can keep finding their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have almost no discussion of those relationships, you know, all these years and years and years of philosophy and religion, that really core, very, in some ways, very paradoxical phenomenon of, yeah. of what it means to care for people is not something that we've thought about very much, uh, or at least not something we've thought about as much as we've thought about lots of other ways that, uh, that people are socially engaged with one another. And, well, you know, yeah. there's an obvious reason for that, which is the people who've been doing that for most of human history have been women. And the oh, people yeah, who've yeah. been writing the philosophy and psychology and religion have been men. <laughs> right, uh, right. There you but, go. 
um, but I think there's an opportunity to try to articulate that. And there's some fascinating philosophical work by uh, Kim Sterelny, who's a philosopher of biology. And he argues that this deep attachments that we feel um, are really about uh, what he calls commitment mechanisms. They're ways, of, exactly as you were just saying, it's a way from an evolutionary perspective of dealing with a problem where you've got two creatures, a mother and a baby, who have very different interests. I mean, yeah, opposing right. interests in all sorts of ways. Um, and yet have to uh, have to live together and coordinate what they do and uh, and end up caring for each other. Mm-hmm. And and Sterelny argues that this this deep irrational attachment that we feel to the people that we love, it it's not a way of saying it's not because oh we love people because they want the same things that we do. It's when people don't want the same things that we do that love can allow us to negotiate that relationship, that love can allow that relationship uh, to continue. And I think one of the things that lots of people have pointed out, and I don't know that there's a good way of, of resolving this, but there's a tension between that and and the push towards having ever broader, uh, uh, more global kinds of politics, which is a good thing. So, yeah. But how can you keep that sense of, look, we're in conflict. We don't agree. We're not doing the same things. But we have a deep feeling of respect for each other, of love for each other, the kind of thing that happens in a family. And that will let us that will let us get go through. That yeah, will well, keep that us let us continue defecting. to share life, right? Even as all of these things make us so different and and perhaps in conflict. I mean it will make us it gives us a kind of foundational motivation for trying to cooperate and mm-hmm. trying to coordinate. And cooperation and coordination are the great things that, that human beings do. And there's always been this kind of paradox about you look at human beings from an evolutionary perspective, and we're these creatures that can socially coordinate and cooperate. How did that ever evolve? Why why would a bunch of of individual organisms ever be altruistic. That's a great paradox. And one thought is that our capacity for love is one of the deepest uh, aspects of us that enables us to to solve mm. that coordination problem. Mm. But it's rooted in these deep, intimate, familial relationships. And when those get undermined, it's very hard to replace it by other uh, by other kinds of mechanisms. And as I say, the great uh, Chinese. Uh, the great uh, the great Chinese political philosophers like Menji thought the big problem was how could you scale that up? How could you how could you feel the same way about the entire you know country of China that you did about your brother or your or your child? And I think that's still a very very foundational important problem. Maybe more of a foundational important problem now. Yeah, it's such, it's I think it's such a worthy question to to put out there and and ponder in a really sophisticated and probing way. And also as so much of your research is about like that as as absurd as that sounds as as kind of bizarre and it it's something we all most of us just in, we know how to do this. Yeah. Um, and we don't even think about it. I do want to talk to you about parenting. Um, mm-hmm. Which is obviously something you've you've written about, and 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 is is just connected connected to the whole question of babies and children. Although, um, although as you point out, interestingly, the verb parenting really only became popular in the nineteen seventies, and you've you've called it a bad invention. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it instrumentalizes the relationship? Does it, you, you think that it's... Yeah, I think that's exactly the point that I was making about care. Yeah. Um, so what happened in the, in, the, in the late 20th century was that the kind of exploit way of being in the world, this way of being in the world where you have goals and you want to accomplish them and you want to do it as efficiently and effectively as possible, which again is a very good thing. It's the thing that is keeping us all alive. Um, that model became much more generalized, generalized to lots of other activities, other ways of being human that are really different from that model. And I think one of the most dramatic examples is that got um, that got generalized to caregiving. So for most of human history, um, people were caregiving because they'd been cared for and they saw how their other caregivers uh, took care of them. And by the time they were having children themselves, they'd taken care of many, yeah. many younger yeah. younger uh, children. Uh, so there was this kind of tradition of here's what caring is about. And, and then at the end of the 20th century, you had this strange thing that happened, which is because of social mobility and because people were having children later, you would have people who had never actually cared for a child and had only themselves been cared for by their biological parents who were suddenly faced with this task of, of having a child. But and and your biological who, parents probably don't live nearby when you have the baby, right? So you're, exactly, you are all alone. Right. Yeah. Um, and not only are you all alone, but you've been really good at going to school and working, and you know how to <laughs> right, go to school and work. Right. Uh, right. Uh, so I think it was quite natural to think, okay, this is another variant I can master of going to school this. and working. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. If I just figure out yeah. what are the benchmarks, you know, yeah. what are the goals, and how do got, I accomplish you, them? You've, got, you've been reading what to do when you're expecting, and then you'll get what to do in the first year. and. <laughs> Um, and and so there was this model that came out, which mm-hmm. was sort of, okay, here's the thing. You're trying to make this grown-up who's going to be a really good, successful, happy grown-up. And there's some kind of thing that you can do that will bring about that outcome. And that's so much not the way that caregiving works. Right. Uh, that Think right. of how different that right. is from the picture of caregiving that I was talking about before, where mm-hmm. the idea is you just get another human being and it's pretty much at random. <laughs> and you take on the needs and concerns and cares of of that other human being with a kind of this profound emotional uh, emotional depth. And I think the tension between the reality of what caregiving is like, including the fact that it's frustrating, it's unexpected, yes. it's variable. It's exhausting. Um, As parenting is exhausting. exhausting. Yeah. Um, when you started thinking about that as if it was a kind of work, Boy, it sure mm-hmm. seems like it's not a job that you would particularly mm-hmm. want to take on, you mm-hmm. know. Um, whereas I think if you think about it as it's a kind of caring, it's a kind of love, um, and and we know that love is complicated and and difficult and involves compromises, but is you know there's nothing else on life giving is yeah. like it. Yeah, um, that's a much healthier. It, more empowering way of thinking about relationships with children. So you're the the uh, the metaphors you use are uh, um, two two models um, would be the car- carpenter mode of mm-hmm. parenting, which is which is very very dedicated to shaping and to bringing about a certain outcome, or the gardening, um, which would be um, providing the space, right, in which this human being can flourish. I think gardening is a very nice metaphor for if you're trying to do this project, which I which I would like to do, of 
really taking caring seriously from a scientific perspective and a philosophical mm. perspective, um, trying to find good ways of talking about it that make it be other than just just another kind of work. Um, I think the gardening is a really nice example of that because part of what happens when you garden is that you provide this space for other creatures, in this case, plants, to, to grow, to thrive, to succeed. But you don't know beforehand exactly how that's going to take place. Um, and in fact, it's an empirical fact that the best way to have a, a garden is to have an ecosystem where unexpected variable things will happen that you don't know about and you can't predict beforehand. And that kind of system is much better, to get back to climate change, is much better to at um, adjusting to to change, to variability, mm-hmm. than you know, a system of hothouse orchids where you have to control everything in order to bring about a particular outcome. And I think that kind of picture is much more like what goes on with with caregiving with for a next generation. It's a very, and even if you could accomplish this end of shaping a child to come out a particular way, you would have defeated the whole point of childhood by doing that yeah. because the whole point of childhood is to have each generation introduce new variability, new um, a kind of noise and randomness and new possibilities. Um, and you would actually squelch that if you if you succeeded in shaping the child to come out a particular way. But again, we don't have we don't have very good scientific or intellectual or philosophical or even religious context to describe that and to talk about it um, and to make it not be just another kind of uh, another kind of work or another kind of exploit activity. Yeah, and I think you're pointing at, you know, a very interesting aspect of this. I mean, that if you've, as you've been dis- discussing, like, what, what childhood gives our species in evolutionary terms is this period of novelty and unpredictability and variability and and imagination and creativity and this capacity for change that makes humanity more ro- robust. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're coming out, I, I do feel like this I don't know. I don't know what's happening with parenting. I mean, I feel like I feel like in my life, <laughs> I was born in 1960, right? So I think I feel like I've watched. You know, I think I was when I was having my children. It was kind of the attachment, attachment parenting moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's the language of the helicopter, and there's the new thing is the snowplow, right? like clearing all obstacles from before your children. And clearly, this is not all children or all parents. But I do wonder if you've thought about. You know, it's it's almost like we, for many reasons that you and I could spend several other hours talking about, like we we there was this there's been this fear mentality and this protection mentality and also mm-hmm. this control mentality. It's almost like our prefrontal cortex and parenting was way over involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and and we live in this moment. In fact, children are now being raised and coming into adulthood in this moment where. Where in fact all the forms that we came into the century with are not working. Like this is a moment where we need adaptable humans mm-hmm. and socially creative humans. I just wonder if you think about uh, all of this in the context of if if we think that generations change our species and move our species forward. Do you worry about how modes of parenting this n- new invention? have maybe in imprinting this moment in ways which are difficult. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the good part is that even when what parents are doing is kind of dumb, children basically ignore it. Yeah, I think we probably get some, we probably get a fair bit of uh, robustness and variability independently of, of the strange views that parents have about what it is that they're doing. But having said that, I do think that there's, um, I do think there's an issue about how vulnerable children are. So we know, for instance, that there's been this big increase in anxiety in children. Yeah. At the same time that, especially for middle-class children, um, the reality is that there's many fewer threats than there were um, in the past. Yeah. And it's this real puzzle about why is there so much fear and anxiety around around childhood when that doesn't seem to fit at least their immediate experience. Now, in the long run, there are certainly threats to to face. There's a wonderful empirical result that I love that just came, just came out in uh, in Nature, which is that if you even look at rats, you look at you know classic story about uh, how rat psychology works is you put the rat in a maze, it goes down one arm, it gets a shock, it never goes down that arm again. Um, but it turns out that that's not true for young rats. So juveniles, children and teenage rats, actually will go down the arm, will prefer to go down the arm where there's the shock, but they'll only do it if the mother is present. Hmm. Um, and this recent paper showed the same thing's true with three- and four-year-old children, and that will resonate for most people who've had three- or four-year-old children. Yeah. They actually want to take risks, um, but they'll take risks when they feel as if there's this kind of background of... I can take the risk because really everything will be okay. Now, I think if that mother rat was sort of looking at the baby and saying, don't go down there, there's a shock, um, <laughs> that would that would have end up having negative effects. Yeah. And in fact, that kind of avoidance learning is a model for anxiety. So what happens when people are suffering from anxiety is yeah. they're so concerned that there might be something bad at the end that they won't actually try and find out, oh, no, actually, in this context, it's different. Or here's something I could do to cope with. Uh, with this threat, um, so the the paradox. I think it's a bit like what's happened. What happens with allergies, where being yes. protected from yes. um, being protected from threat ex- actually as a child actually ends up paradoxically making you kind of set off the alarms even when there isn't a threat. Yeah, it makes um, you more fragile being as an adult. Yeah. That's right. It mm-hmm. Makes you less less robust at a time when what you really need is mm-hmm. uh, is is robustness. Now, again, I think the you know, the evolutionary program is deeply enough there that this particular phenomenon in this particular generation of middle class children isn't. That four isn't decades going to be of, fatal. of weird parenting can't ruin us. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I sometimes say think about you think about the greatest generation, think about the people who grew up in, you know, war torn Europe. Um, that would seem as if exactly. that was going to be a much more damaging outcome and and human beings and children mm-hmm. are 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 pretty robust but it is the problem of our particular time and our our particular uh our particular time in our particular society and trying to trying in as, as a society to say no what we want our children to do is to is to be able to take risks knowing that those risks might actually really not turn out well yeah that's a very 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 difficult thing that's a very difficult thing to do but a very um a very essential, uh, yeah. a very essential thing to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, and kind of had this feeling as my children grew older, and I watched, you know, is that we we give ourselves way too much credit for how much shaping we can do. Um, I mean, I felt like we can, you, you can definitely 
damaged children, but in terms of like, can we turn them into something? Um, and then, no, and, I, you know, yeah, right? I think I think what our aim should be is that yeah. is actually to end up having, as in a garden, is to have the yeah. children come end up doing something that we never would have yeah. thought that they would have done in a million years. Yeah. That's the real. Yeah. That's the real point. That's the real satisfaction. And you 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 make this. Um, and then I think, you know, having been in these generations where parenting got so controlling, where in fact parenting was invented, um, the truth is you, you, you're raising human beings, right? And you raise them and you may have parented by some measure that you could lay out very rationally much better than your parents. But you, you're still raising, <laughs> you're raising human beings and they have issues and they have whatever their neuroses are and, and they have to make mistakes, right? I mean, you, and that's, that's also... That's hard in the way we've done parenting this generation. So you, you have this statement, part of the pathos, but also the moral depth of being a parent is that a good parent creates an adult who can make his own choices, even disastrous choices. <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny when, when people reacted to the, to the book, and I can kind of sympathize with these, you know, young parents who were just starting out. That was... You know, the, the truth is if you really are talking about taking risks, yeah. one of the things about taking risks and being autonomous is that you can end up with disasters. You can end up with a child who doesn't succeed. You could, I mean, you know, in the worst case scenario, like you could end up with a child who's the Columbine killer. That can happen. And that is part of what makes being a part of what makes being a parent so difficult, but also so deep, so so much not superficial. Yeah. But it's a very hard thing for uh, it's a very hard thing for contemporary parents to to take on as a possibility. And I I do think it's particularly something. And this kind of gets back to some of the issues about the religious tradition. You know, the great American tradition. And again, it's a very positive one of optimism and. Um, and a sense of the world coming out well means we don't have much space for tragedy. We don't have much space for saying, you know, there are tragedies in the world, and part of part of being a human being in the world is recognizing the possibility of tragedy and recognizing that 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 might happen. That you know, in fact, tragic things almost certainly will happen. Well, we don't even to your have, children. Yeah, we don't even have much of a tolerance for just the basic fact that we will all die. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's I think just the, <laughs> the fact that, and and you get these kind of paradoxes. I uh -huh. spend a lot of time now because I'm doing all this AI work. I spend a lot of time talking to uh, to people in in Silicon Valley, and there's this kind of funny let story just, let, about. Just before, I don't think we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this. So yeah, well, before we you go, done, let's just yeah. say you're doing this work in AI. Um, because well, basically, you know, this would be how it's that how young children learn is incredibly hard for computers and robots, and you're helping them think about causal learning and what human children right. could teach programmers. Right. Is that a short way to say it? That's right. Okay. So I've been doing yeah. this work, trying to uh, use the model of children, human children, yeah. who are the best learners we know of, yeah. um, for trying to design computational yeah. systems. So I one of the to things, do it, yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, we're, are we too late? Do you need to... No, no, we're not. I'm just aware we have about 20 minutes, and I just feel like... Okay. Yeah. I'm not okay, sure we're going to be able to talk uh, about that at length, so I wanted to get that in, that description. Um, so, but one of the things that happens is that you get people saying, everybody recognizes that taking risks is really important, and you'll get 
parents saying they recognize that taking risks is important and you get uh, creative people who are scientists or who are uh, working as entrepreneurs recognizing that taking risks is really important. But they want to just take the risks that are going to work out well in the end. Uh, And there's this real tension about, oh, yes, I want to have people take risks, but I just want to make sure that all the risks work out um, and are profitable. And you just can't have it both ways. If you're going to have a culture that involves risk-taking, then there's going to be risks. And and that's true for your children as well. If you want children who are capable of risk-taking, that means that they're going to take risks. That means they're going to fall over in the playground and hurt their knees and maybe they'll even break their arms sometimes. Yeah. And that that just comes with that just comes with the territory. Yeah, I mean this is such a complex aspect of us of humanity, right? I mean I I agree. I mean we're kind of discovering that failure is part of being alive in this culture, but then turning it into this genre of business books about how, you know, you fail in order to finally make your millions. Right. And But it absolutely applies. But, but, but it's also this paradoxical thing about us that, that we mostly grow when things go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Or that that's a, those are huge junctures of growth and learning and deepening. It's not well, beautiful... when we're riding the peak yeah. of our success that we become better human beings, unfortunately. Um, there's a beautiful poem by my friend Jane Hirschfield called Resilience, mm-hmm. which I won't be able to I won't be able to reproduce here. But the idea is that the kind of resilience that you want is not uh, you know, the pillow that comes back to its form every time you lie on it, but the resilience of a tree where the light is blocked from one side and it finds a way to go to the other side, Mm. or the resistance of a plant that finds another path, or a river that's blocked in one way and finds another way to go. And and she says in the poem, you know, that resilience is the basis of all of life on earth. Um, And that's a really different kind of picture of Resilience. It's not that it will all bounce back again to where it was. It's that the very act of of failure or of moving in a different direction is part of what it means to be human. And it isn't that that is okay because in the long run you're going to succeed and things are going to get better. Right. It's it's okay because that's what it means to be human. And in particular, that's what it means to have a child: is to watch uh, and care for and uh, identify with another creature who's going through that uh, who's going through that process of of challenge and, and change yeah yeah and it it is also that that it's a, it's and it's, a, it's another expression of that fundamental um, characteristic of childhood and childhood for our species of of something happening that you could not possibly have imagined or planned, and yet it turns out to be who you are, or right, or what you, you know, what the, the the quality of your life. Um, Excuse me a second. I'm just gonna. Okay. I'm, I'm again the definite disadvantage of having grandchildren. The only one you end up having a cold all the time. But. Okay. Well, this follows. This is good. Good segue into what I want to talk to you about next. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How many grandchildren do you have? I have three, okay. uh, eight. I always have to keep track of their ages. They're yeah. eight, six, and four. You know, there's a there's a place where you write, maybe in the philosophical baby, 
the one-month-old turns into the two-year-old, and then the three-year-old, and then the five-year-old, and eventually, miraculously, into a mother with children of her own. How could all these utterly different creatures be the same person? You know, and, 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 and you also write so wonderfully about the metamorphosis that is childhood, the con- uh, ch- childhood to adulthood. And then, and then you know, I fi- I f- I'm, I'm finding, I'm so fascinated right now about then the, the metamorphosis that happens again as you age, right, into, <laughs> if we're all going to live to be 100, you know, let's call 50, this half, halfway point. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm just curious about how this work and thinking you've done about childhood and our species in that sense inform your experience of the, the, you know, the metamorphosis of, of growing older. Yeah, this is something that I've gotten very interested in, I suppose, for autobiographical reasons yeah. now. But, um, you know, there's a tendency to think about human development as if there's this wonderful peak of all of humanity, which is a sort of 35-year-old white guy who's writing philosophy or psychology. Yeah. Um, and then everything else is kind of a, a, a failure or an <laughs> attempt to get to that amazing peak and then in falling off from it. Um, and that doesn't make much sense from an evolutionary, uh, doesn't make much sense from an evolutionary perspective. It makes much more sense to think about what evolutionary psychologists, uh, sorry, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes much more sense to think about what evolutionary biologists call life history. And the idea of life history uh, is that across a lifespan, many, many different things happen, and you have different periods with different kinds of functions. So childhood is one of the best examples. So having a long childhood is different, but also just how long you live, um, Mm -hmm. when you um, stop being fertile, what your relationships are to the next generation. Those are all part of life history and evolutionary biology. And evolutionary biologists think this is an absolutely crucial part of evolution, a crucial part of what it means to be an organism. Um, now, if that picture is right, then just as we should think about childhood not as being sort of a defective version of adulthood, but this separate time with its own characteristics... One of the things that's really distinctive about human beings is that we have this extra 20 years between 50 and 70 of life um, that our closest primate relatives don't have. So, and, and really so, that we've just received, in, right? It, it feels like age, like the, the difference between 50 and 70 from when I was growing up in the mid-20th century is fundamentally different now, which is so interesting. Well, that's... It's not, that's not, I don't think that's completely true in that it turns out that if you look in... Forager cultures, for example, um, it is true that our uh, life expectancy then in those cultures is much lower. But that's because lots more people are dying when they're young. Lots more people are dying, especially as children. People are living to their 70s in just as much in forager cultures as they are in our culture. So that, and that contrasts with, say, chimpanzees, where essentially when you are no longer fertile around 50, then then chimpanzees are dying. So even just in the course of our evolution, we got this extra 20 years and this kind of paradoxical extra 20 years for women because it's an extra 20 years after they're not fertile anymore, this grandmother period. Um, And... That's been extended now because uh, because we are you know living on to our 90s. But the basic idea that there's this time um, after midlife w- when your 
when you're still alive and you're still functioning, just as childhood itself is sort of evolutionarily paradoxical, this period is sort of evolutionarily yes. paradoxical. And there's more and more evidence that one of the clues to what's going on in that period is this idea of cultural transmission. So there's very interesting work suggesting that if you look at, you know, where are you getting the stories, the songs, the myths, the history, um, that's coming from grandparent to grandchild, not necessarily from parent to child. The parents are trying to get the children to, you know, learn the functional things they need to stay alive. But the big picture, the big historical picture, the big picture about how the world works or how the culture works, that's actually coming from grandparents. Um, There's even a wonderful, surprising finding, which is if you look at other species, it's very rare to have postmenopausal females. But we do know that orcas, killer whales, have postmenopausal females. And it turns out there's a bunch of beautiful work showing that they also have cultural traditions. So the the grandmothers are passing on information about what kind of food there is, where you should go, what the hunting grounds are like to the children and to the grandchildren. Um, And that's a really important part of of orca survival. If the grandmothers die, then the group doesn't do nearly as well. And I think that's even more true for humans, that the kinds of things that we do as uh, as grandparents are so different. And this is one of the experiences. It's not like kind of, you know, an easier form of parenting. It's a totally different, it's a totally different relationship. Yeah. And I think I think it's very interesting to think about what kinds of adaptations we have in older life that aren't just I mean, some of it is just that we're falling apart, but but some of it is that there are things that we do that that really are designed for that last period. So, for instance, you know, that frontal control, that kind of, you know, going in and desperately trying to get things done um, that's so characteristic of our, you know, mid-adult life, we know that that frontal control gets seems to uh, get loosened as we get older, and as what a we relief, get into right? that older. What a relief exactly. that is. Exactly, that's right. Um, and is that and why it's it, you know you I, when I was reading you was writing about um, the quality of children of play I mean play is such an important piece of intelligence right and creativity of childhood and and that adults are able to retain that I almost feel like playfulness comes back maybe is that mm-hmm. related to um, to the loosening of that control <laughs> executive well, function. I think- I think that's one of the possibilities that Uh people are looking at. So some of that wider focus, we do have some evidence that that kind of wider focus that we see in children compared to adults, Mm -hmm. that some of that comes back later on in, uh, some of that comes back later on in life. And I definitely think that this kind of caring and cultural transmission niche, as it were, that role um, is what seems to happen in that that later period of Mm -hmm. life, that as opposed to thinking... I have to find a mate, and I have to find resources, and I have to raise these children myself. Now the the agenda is this very different agenda, this agenda about, well, I don't have to worry about those things for myself, but what I do have to do is care for the next generation and, and pass on the wisdom that I've managed to acquire in my own life. You and know, what that means is this kind of paradoxical thing that lots of people have noticed, which is, you know, on the one hand, everything is just going terribly badly, as one of the things I say is, you know, I think everything's great about getting older except the part where you wake up and find her in the body of a cockroach. Um, uh, but 
But at the same time that everybody's finding that somehow they've been transformed into these cockroaches, mm-hmm. we're all a lot happier than we right. were before. Right. Happier um, as a cockroach. Yeah. Uh, that which seems seems kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we're not we don't have the kind of intense erotic feelings that we did when we were young, and yet the love that we feel for our, our partners is feels deeper and more profound and just as important, maybe even more important. Our love for our grandchildren is as deep and profound as our our love for um, our love for our children. One one other thing I say is, you know, I think you could make an argument that basically we're human up till puberty and after menopause. And then in between, we're sort of glorified primates trying to do all those primate <laughs> oh, things so about mating and dominating and finding our way in the social that hierarchy. That is such a good and... image. I love that. <laughs> I want to tell you something that's fascinating in our spaces, because we have a lot of young people in our kind of listening, reading community of On Being, and we actually have a really cross-generational, really beautiful audience in terms of huge age range. And what we're aware of and, and just trying to find ways to support and nourish is so so yes, yes, of course, grandparents serve this function, but for the same reasons that you and I spoke about that, you know, parenting was invented, you know, people don't always necessarily have grandparents or they don't live close by. And we're observing people in their 20s really actively searching for and reaching out to, um, for elders, right, who, who they're not necessarily biologically related to, right. for wise elders. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I love hearing you talk about this, and I, I, I wonder if it's possibly a, a good sign about this development of our species of kind of loosening the, this idea that it has to be family ties, but, but finding ways to recreate beyond the family uh, unit that um, age-old way of transmission and grounding. Well, if you look in forager cultures, for example, what you see is, you know, there certainly are families, but the caregiving and the grandparenting kind of function is, isn't is just people who are in your immediate biological yeah. family. That's a role that, um, that's a role that older people are, are playing. Uh, uh, that's a role that older people are playing in general. Another finding that I uh, uh, another study that I love was a study that was uh, uh, looking at conversation during the day in a forager culture. And what happened was that they, the anthropologist recorded all the conversations between five people or more um, across the course of the day. And what she discovered was during the day part, most of the conversations were coming from those adults and they were, a lot of it was basically either trying to coordinate work or complaining about the fact that everybody else was not doing the thing they were supposed to be doing. Um, there was this kind of 45% that she called conflict and criticism. Right. So now when I get home from work, I sort of can say to my husband, oh, yeah, it was only like 30% conflict and criticism. <laughs> we're actually doing pretty well. But then the amazing thing that happened was when the sun went down and everyone was sitting around the fire, Suddenly, it was the children and the elders who were dominating the conversation. Mm. Now it was the grandparents telling the myths and the stories and talking about the things that had happened in the past or happened far away. And it was the grandchildren sitting around and listening to to those stories. Now they were the ones who were dominating the conversation. Oh, isn't that Um, fascinating? And I think we we really, uh, you know, a, a positive social movement that's happening is is to try to 
uh, reinstate some of that. So yes. there's actually people who are trying to do things like have a grandmother core yeah. in preschools so yeah. that when we have preschools, not so much that, you know, older women are somehow replacing the preschool teachers, but you would have designated grandmothers who would get paid mm-hmm. um, to be the grandmother in a classroom to have serve that kind of function or, for that matter, a, a grandfather. Um, and I've noticed that, I think there's some evidence for this, that there isn't as much of the generation immediately assuming that they're going to move away, which was true for my generation, I imagine yes. for yours as well. Yeah. Right? Um, my children consciously made a decision to stay in the Bay Area in spite of all the problems of jobs and, and rent and so forth because they wanted to have that broader childhood and um, people are having multi-generational homes. Yeah, co-living. Um, I, I find that too and I wonder if just as as part of the way you kind of see how how the young among us part of their function for all of us is to question things as given. I, I also feel that there's this, them kind of looking around and saying, so why would you live thousands of miles away from the people you love, right? Why does that, why is that progress? Um, yeah, I think that's something uh, I, I uh, wrote a review of uh, Stephen Pinker's book about yes, enlightenment, which that, is, yeah. yeah. And, you know, something that strikes me as an academic the way I started out that review, right? I'm a scientist, and I'm in a, a community of scientists which I love and I think has wonderful values. But I'm very conscious of the fact that if I went out to you know a, a small town somewhere and said, "Look, I here's this talented, smart young woman. I want you to come and be a scientist," and she'd say, "That's great. Um, I want to spend time with my parents and grandparents and with you know my high school sweetheart. Can I can I do that?" And I'd have to say, nope, absolutely not. If you want to come and be a scientist, you're going to have to go to graduate school in one place and have a postdoc someplace else. And maybe you'll get a job somewhere, but it's almost certainly not going to be where your parents or grandparents are. And you won't be able to have children until you're at least in your 30s and 40s. And probably your partner isn't going to be in the same place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And yet my community of scientists doesn't think of that as being a horrific aspect of our right. social organization. We just right. say, yeah, it's kind of tough. It's two-body problems and so forth. We don't say, what kind of community is there where you can't be in the same place as your as your children and and uh, uh, and grandchildren? Um, and and I think that whole dimension is something. I, I think part of the sense of discontent with yes. classical liberal values is because of a sense that we've really lost something in doing that. Well, and I mean, it, 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 right. And as we were saying a little while ago, I mean, the Enlightenment brought us so much, but it, it, there's a bit of a corrective to what it, it, it kind of demoted our bodies and our embodied experience and our relationships, right? So I feel like the new, there's now kind of a recovery of, of some of that, which doesn't have to be throwing out everything that was good. No, I think the, yeah. I think one thing is that there are, this is a point that my, my favorite philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, made. There are real trade-offs in human existence. Mm-hmm. There are, the, again, he talked about these basic tragedies. We can't do everything. We have. There's a real trade-off between autonomy and attachment and commitment, and there's a real trade-off between maximizing our goals and being able to explore. and And human life is about how do we how do we deal with those trade-offs. And I, I do think the trade-off about attachment and close relationships 
and other kinds of goals that we have has been one that we haven't we haven't done a very good job of um, over the past little while, and it's one that we could do a better job of um, and could and should do a better job of. I, I think that is actually one that this generation of young is also pushing. That's right, that, that conversation and that reflection. I, I want to kind of, as we, as we finish, I want to um, invoke the philosopher in you. I mean, I mean, one of the big questions across time of the human condition, certainly of philosophy and theology, but also I feel which science is picking up in interesting ways now, is this question of consciousness, mm-hmm. what it is. And I'm really curious about what... What, how you think about that after this life you've lived and the, and also the life, and I do mean the life you've lived, so both as a human being and a, a mother, as well as a, somebody who studies, uh, studies the, the evolutionary paradox of childhood <laughs> in, our, in our species. What is, how do you think about consciousness, which is another way to talk about what, what it means to be human in some fundamental, uh, very difficult to define way? Yeah, I, I've thought a lot and, and, and written and, and even done some studies trying to answer this question about, you know, what's consciousness like for babies and children mm-hmm. and what can that tell us about consciousness in general? And, you know, it's a big mystery, but my view is that we, I think it's very unlikely that what will happen is we'll get one single answer to the question of what is consciousness if it's going to turn out to be, you know, a particular neural vibration or a particular yeah. part of the brain or uh, integrated information or all the, a lot of the things that are kind of on the table. I think it's very unlikely that that will turn out to be true. I think what's going to happen is we're going to find lots of different relationships between phenomenology between conscious experience and different kinds of of functions and brain states. And one of the ones that I think is most interesting is this relationship between that very broad, open, kind of mystical experience, um, that experience when the whole world seems to be full of meaning and significance and you're open to everything that's going on in the world. Um, that experience, I think we have very good reason to believe that that's a lot like the experience of babies and children. So mm. I've argued that from that perspective, babies and children are actually more conscious than we are. And again, I think, you know, going back to Wordsworth, and I think everyone who's cared for a child has had that experience of looking at those wide eyes and yeah. and just feeling as if there's a kind of pure, open awareness that you see in in those children that's very different from the kind of typical awareness that we have as adults. Um, one of the fascinating, completely sort of unexpected, fascinating things that's happened recently is, as I mentioned before, this work with uh, psychedelics, where it turns out that when you look at brains under the influence of, of psychedelic substances, you see a pattern that looks very much like the childhood brain. Many, many local connections, mm. much less frontal control, um, much more plasticity, much more flexibility. Right. Um, and the therapeutic uses of those substances which seem to be coming out are are connected to this uh, this increase in, in flexibility. Um, and I think that tells us something about the fact that, you know, we're not just kind of making it up that children have that kind of wide consciousness or that it gives them a way of thinking about the world uh, that is is really deep and valuable and connected to these other kinds of uh, states of awe and uh, 
uh, an openness and awareness that that have been seen as being the province of of religion. And you know, one of the things that it, do, I, it does give completely new connotations to the saying of Jesus to be like a little child. <laughs> that's right, and I also mean, there's think, some wisdom in that, right? That there's something in that. Yeah, no, I think I think that as I said, I think that Jesus is 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 onto something mm-hmm. uh, about what it's like to be uh, about what it's like to be a little child, yeah. and of course, the big question for an atheist scientist, the way I am, when you're considering those things, is always, well, okay, is this just a hallucination or is this capturing something that's real? And after all, most human experience, like just visual experience, is experience, it's consciousness, but it's also tracking real, genuine things about the external world. And the question is, are these experiences of openness really tracking something that's real in the world, or is it just, you know, you've taken this drug or you've had this mystical experience and it's just a just a weird thing that happens? And I think childhood might be quite helpful in suggesting that, no, that state is tracking something that's important in the world. It is really tracking how full of information, how how wide, how awesome well, uh, right, and the, the world actually is. What you get, what you hear about the ex- that is so transformative for people is this sense of the spaciousness of reality, which we can't, which we don't always comprehend in our very purpose-driven days. But right, that spaciousness makes sense. That that's exactly. also the experience of the baby. I mean, that is the true experience they're having. It's a new world. Um, and that's right. You know, yeah. I mean, it is true that the world is larger and more fascinating and uh, and more full of information and there's more to find out about it than we ever think about. Um, the experience of awe is, yes. is exactly that, a way of describing that experience, that sense that the world is so much larger than than we can understand or than our concerns about it, uh, our immediate concerns would suggest. And I think that's that's... Scientists have that feeling because that's that really is true about what the world is like. Yes, and, and when children have that feeling, they're tracking something that's truer about what the world is like than than we adults in our getting and spending we lay waste our days yeah. uh, primate phase. Well, but but well, but what that also says, what uh, an aspect and an implication of that observation about children is that each and every one of us actually has an experience. Of being of that that way of being conscious and mm-hmm. and um, and somewhere in our bodies we have that memory. I mean, I'm curious as you've kind of as a young scientist and then a person going through your entire life and also really contributing to this field. Um, do you think there's been? A, have you? Do you think it's possible to kind of intentionally? Uh, claim that part of our experience or has being around children and studying children and being fascinated by them has that is that is there any way that you think that that's allowed you to carry that the child in yourself um no i think that's i think it's absolutely right and it's something that is very under um underappreciated uh-huh. and experienced again you know if you think about the religion religious tradition it's typically been ascetic and celibate and the the tradition is that the people who are going to have those experiences are ones who've removed themselves from the world of childhood and sexuality and family. Um, that's very much been the tradition. And I think actually caring for children 
is one of the most common and best ways that we have that experience. And caring for children is such a a profound thing because on the one hand, it's the most grown-up, responsible, caring thing that we do. But on the other hand, it gives us a chance to be in that expanded universe, you know. I say you walk down to, you know, going to get a pint of milk with a three-year-old is like going to get a pint of milk with William Blake. Suddenly, you realize (laughs) that this three blocks of completely ordinary suburban street that has become literally become completely invisible to you. Suddenly, you realize how rich it is. There's dogs and there's flowers and potholes and there's birds overhead. Um, And you know, for me now as a as a grandmother. I simultaneously became a grandmother and am very, very deeply immersed, as you are, when you become a senior scientist in the world of, of getting and striving and doing things and having deadlines and all the rest of it. And for me, the, the release from that world is the time that I spend with my grandchildren. And again, I think because women have been the ones who've traditionally been most engaged in that caregiving, that, that whole side of thinking about caring for children as itself uh, a sort of profoundly spiritual experience in both senses, both because it involves this kind of altruistic moral relationship yeah. and also because it gives you a chance to be in this in this world of open awareness. Yeah, I kind of in that zone with them. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's been really invisible in the tradition because it's it's been... Um, it's been women women with children who've been doing it. And even among women, the women with children have been so busy raising the children that they haven't had time to write about it and, <laughs> and talk about it and do science about it and do philosophy about it until relatively recently. Yeah. Well, that may be your last word. I do want to ask you, just before I finish, um, just really pointedly to this, to this fascinating idea you have about how our species grows and progresses and changes through the effects of generations as opposed to mere individuals and you're somebody who now has you have students you have you have you have grandchildren you have adult children um do you think about right now how this particular generation of teenagers and young adults um is shifting challenging changing us as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things about being human that, again, we maybe don't acknowledge as much is that you know, the nature of human nature is this ability to change and this ability to be connected to a great historical past of all the people behind you and then also to be connected to these future generations that are going to do things that are different from the things that you do. You know, the myth of Orpheus is this myth about the past where you go into the future and you, you every time you turn back to try and recapture the past, it just vanishes. Yeah. But I think there's a kind of reverse myth of Orpheus that we have as parents, which is that we see our children, those new generations, drifting off into a future that we can't reach and we can't mm. even yeah. visualize. Um, and the more we look into the future, the further off they, the further off they seem. And there's something, as in the myth of Orpheus, there's something painful and, and sad about that. But there's also something encouraging. There also is a sense that even if, you know, as, as Martin Luther King said, you know, even if I won't get there uh, with you, I can see that you're going to get there. Yeah. And I think that's, that's always a feeling that we have and a feeling that becomes more and more intense as we get older when I know that, you know, 
I won't see the solution uh, or not to climate change. I'm going to have to imagine my grandchildren, you know, going off into that future that I isn't an, even an imaginable future for me. Mm-hmm. But but the past is that, at least the past history, is that human beings have succeeded in doing that, that yeah. they've succeeded in in being able to envision possibilities that weren't there before. They've succeeded in being robust in the face of, in the face of uh, changing environments. They've succeeded in actually making the world a different place than it was before. Yeah. And that imagination, that capacity for fiction, uh, is actually one of the crucial things that allows that to happen. So, so of course, the hope is that that, and it, sorry, sorry, and it is interesting that in the context of the climate crisis, it is the children and the young people yes. who are active and hopeful, as opposed to somewhat despairing, which I think is the way a lot of older people end up feeling. Yeah, um, and that's clearly the, and that's clearly the the road that we can imagine. Uh, uh, by which we can imagine a hopeful future. There's this wonderful quote. I can't remember where he did this. The Greek philosopher, how would you say, Heraclitus? Heraclitus, Heraclitus yeah. said that said no man, no man ever steps in the same river mm-hmm. twice because neither the river nor the man is the same. Our mm-hmm. lives and our history as a species are that sort of ever-changing, perpetually flowing river. Which is so much more resonant with thinking of your work in mind and just the metamorphosis that every individual person undergoes in the course of a life. Yeah, I think often when people are thinking about science and scientists or the science of human nature, they see it as a a rather reductive part of saying, okay, here's the constraints on what human nature is like. Here's what humans are doomed to be. Uh, Here's the, the way that humans are doomed to be. And I think... I think actually the science tells us something very different. What the science tells us is that there's this this stream, this river, this ability to change in unpredictable ways. And when we see our children, we actually see that in in real life for for good or for ill. Um, but that's that's what human nature is all about. I mean, human nature is culture. Uh, what's innate in us is our capacity to learn and change. That's what human nature is really all about. And I think that's a, a much more hopeful and positive picture than maybe some of the pictures we've had in the past. Yeah. Well, Alison, thank you so much. This has been a beautiful, big conversation and such a joy. I've really been looking forward to it. And we'll, um, we'll be producing it. I don't know exactly when we're putting on the air, but we'll let you know. You'll have good advance notice. And yeah, thank you That's so much. Great. It's lovely to meet you. <laughs> well, it's lovely to talk to you, and it's such a nice. It's so nice to have a chance to, again, as with Ezra, I, having an interlocutor who's there at a high, <laughs> high level, and to be able to talk about some of these, uh, talk about some of the spiritual things in this in as intelligent and deep a way as you do oh. is just a, a great. I, seriously, I, I, I'd thought that before as well. You know, it's just a great gift. It's a very hard conversation to have in in the 21st century. Yes, isn't um, that strange? Well, we're, we're going to bring it back. We're, we're all, all of us working together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Okay, thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.